have Lola Rainey, who is the executive director of the Tucson Second Chance Bail Fund and a poet. (laughs) 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 And so, yeah, like I just was telling you, I kind of, I wanted to ask how you came to have abolitionist politics. I remember when I asked you to be on the podcast, the first thing you said is, I'm an abolitionist, just so you know. And I think that's, for a lot of people that don't know my, my background, I started out as a prosecutor. Wow! Yeah, I was a prosecutor. And and that's, that says a lot about how uh, I was socialized okay. at the time. Yeah. I don't know, like, I think a lot of lawyers, if you ask them, honestly, don't recognize how much we are part of the system of oppression. Mm-hmm. We actually think we're making a difference and we're trying mm-hmm. to... Do well, and I and I don't want those shade because I'm one of those lawyers who who did fight to liberate people, and at the same time I I, I fought to prosecute and incarcerate people. So yeah. so what was the mindset that I had as a prosecutor, which was that I saw communities, particularly communities of color, poor communities that were not as made as safe because there was all kinds of uh, violence and things going on, and not and some of that being perpetrated by a small group of people but who were able to pretty much get away with anything because no one cared. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my sense was trying to, in this protective mode, hold, pull people who were creating, doing things and holding them accountable. What does accountability look like? Right. But at the time, it's like feeding them into the system. And I was like, cool, cool. They need to be locked up. Right. <laughs> but well, it's, there's no alternative accountability. Yeah, yeah, system, right. So, right. so back, back in that day, back in that time, that was the mindset because I didn't give any thought to to what that meant. The idea of punishment and and taking people's freedom as a form of punishment things worked for me because it's the way I grew up thinking about things mm-hmm. in terms of right and wrong and and and, and punish and who who and, and how do you make people change behaviors. But the thing is that as I, I've been practicing law for a lot a lot of years and and it was a as a gradual a gradual awakening to what the system really is, mm-hmm. and who I was in that system as a black woman, and and I, I when I switched sides and became a defense attorney, I mean I really began to rethink a lot of the uh, ideas I had as a young prosecutor coming mm-hmm. straight out of law school, and also the way law schools train you too. Yeah, let's be. I mean. <laughs> you're trained to be a cog in that wheel and that machine mm-hmm. and not to be to question it. And then you know all the rules and yeah. structures are set up by courts not to do things that, that will cause the public to lose faith in the mm-hmm. court. So all those ethical restrictions and things they sort of they don't gag you, but they make it hard for you to, to speak. And, yeah. and and the fact uh, the fact of the matter is who's who's buttering your bread? The system. Yeah. You know, lawyers working for institutions, lawyers working in the communities are sort of vested in that system. Mm-hmm. So if you make too much ruckus, then you probably won't be making much, much of a living. Yeah. So I mean, all these are all these factors and stuff, and it's so it's a long process of of of, of consciousness raising that took place in my life that brought me to the point of being an abolitionist. So I'm not a I'm not a Johnny Come Lately abolitionist. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> a, a lot of Johnny Come Lately abolitionists. I am a, uh, uh, I'm one of those, like, when you say born again Christian, I am a, a person who started in one area of, of, of understanding what crime and punishment and all that, and completely moved into a whole different sphere over time. Mm-hmm. And it's through life, life lessons and experiences that I, that I now uh, am in the position I am, which makes it to me easier so, so that I can talk to people who are on the other side. Yeah. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. I've been there, I know this. I was you. Gives <laughs> you a lot of credibility. Yeah, well, at least, at least, at least a sensibility, understanding of the challenge, why it's so hard to change. Uh, when you said Johnny come lately, abolitionist, what do you mean by that? I mean, because I, I think that one of the things you have to be careful of is that state actors and people are very good at co-opting language mm-hmm. and even some of the surface types of interventions and things that they think are, are abolitionist based. Mm-hmm. And I see I see people coming up and say, I'm an abolitionist. I say, yeah, well, well have, have you decolonized in your life? Have you thought about anti-racism in, 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 in your mm-hmm. personal life? Because mm-hmm. you can't be an abolitionist holding on to privilege or this class privilege or race, you know, whatever that is, mm-hmm. you can't be an abolitionist. Because, and I have a lot of people talk about being an abolitionist, so I know I've done no work 
<laughs> cleaning up their acts so that they can have a blank slate to build on. So it's like, so that's why I say Johnny can like the abolition. Yeah, but you still are as, as racist and privileged and entitled and clueless mm -hmm. about what we're talking about. It's a radical, when you say abolition, you're taking a radical position against the culture, against institutions, a lot of them who are still very much a part of your life that you count on and support, whether you realize it or not. Mm -hmm. You can't be, I'm an abolitionist in this vein, but I'm okay with all the other crap that's going on. And it's just a whole process of rethinking and and put, and put questioning what you're doing and why. Because I'm always, my daughters are always calling me out on my stuff. Oh my Uncomfortable. Yeah. And so when you start putting on these, uh, you know, making these changes in your life, you can mm -hmm. you're gonna start shedding friends and opportunities and other things will happen mm -hmm. because you're now creating waves. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of people want to be like abolitionists, but no, I don't want to get uncomfortable. Yeah. So I I'm really I'm I'm really when I talk to people who are abolitionists, I'm like, yeah, let me let's we'll we'll know. Because it's a small world, mm -hmm. and it's funny that you start running into people doing, it's like life spirits, mm -hmm. and you sort of, you, you run into each other all the time, you see them, you hear them, yeah, I know who you are, and, and it's, and to me, it's, it's, it's a way of, it's, it's, that's my, my mode, because I, I have too many people asking me, you know, saying stuff to me, and I'm like, okay, cool, we will see, so, yeah. So when you mentioned state actors, I thought about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and how she has tweeted about abolitionism. And kind of my initial reaction was, well, I think it's great to raise the profile of this idea because I didn't become acquainted with the idea until like 2014. Okay. Was um, there a moment? Yeah. Yeah, a moment. Yeah. Yeah, a specific. This is the day. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sure you're familiar with critical resistance. Yes, I am. Yeah, so I uh, lived in the Bay Area. I was oh. living there at the time. And then my friend, Talia, who I love, said, we need to go to this really important workshop. And I said, okay, because I trusted Talia's politics. And I thought, if she says it's a good workshop, then we need to go. And so I went. And I think I had only half read the description. But then I got there. And they laid out the definition of policing. They tied mm -hmm. the history of policing to the slave patrols that emerged. Right, right. And so, and they did the whole timeline of policing mm -hmm. from the inception of it until now, and all the different recurrences. And, and it was it was really comprehensive. Also, they talked about how hate crime legislation had backfired and had actually been just another mechanism of incarcerating marginalized people of color for longer periods of time. And I, and it was just the first time that somebody had suggested the idea that prison couldn't exist, that prison could not exist at all, that we could completely abolish it. Like I, I was pro-decarceration as much as possible, but the idea that we didn't need police and that we didn't need prisons yeah. was the, what, that was just the first time somebody had... It's mind-blowing when you think about yeah. it, it's just so, it's so entrenched, it's so entrenched yeah. in everything right. that we do. And the first thing people say, well, if you're not going to punish them, what are you going to do? What's what what you're not what they did something wrong and what do you do? Yeah, and that is where you know, and I think for people who are pushing for the end of prisons and and of policing, I my I said well yeah let's let's talk about what would you like to do. Mm -hmm. Then people are like, well I'm not qualified. <laughs> I'm qualified. I don't know, but you yeah. are. Yeah, we're the ones who are going to have to mm -hmm. figure out what we want in lieu of and, 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 and of incarcerations and this motion, this harm harm focused form of punishment. Yeah. Um how do we so it's it's the people themselves yeah. who are and I keep telling them, I said, I know we want to talk about the politicians, but you know what? Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're sort of doing your dirty work for you. Cause, yeah. Cause, Cause if they didn't do it, you all get upset. You want guns and bullets. And you don't think you do, but every time we get to the point of saying, right. what else is like, ah, I don't want criminals running the street. 
Really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, actually, this is something that a professor of mine posted about. She asked, what do abolitionists do with people who are unrepentant and unwilling to go through an accountability process? And my, I, prison, that's a good, that's a good, that's a good question. It's, it's an important question. Uh -huh. I, I just think it's important to recognize like how much prison fails us because prison and the policing system does not do uh, an accurate or good job of capturing every single person who, who perpetuates harm and is unwilling and unrepentant and unwilling to go through an accountability process. And so for me, it's like prison is neither necessary nor sufficient in order to deal with that problem. But I, I think, and so, and I guess, but her eventual point was, well, so yeah, you have this account, alternative accountability process, but what happens if someone still is not willing to go through it? State coercion is required. What would you say to that person? I say that, <laughs> I think that, that, that those are the hard, the hard choices that, that as a community we will arrive at at some point. Mm -hmm. And it does, it, 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 does that involve some type of form of exile? Some form of way of protecting those people who are likely to be hurt mm -hmm. by someone who refuses to do what they do? Mm -hmm. Do you create, give them options of places to live? among, you know, communities of people, like-minded people, <laughs> and say, well, then fine, then mm -hmm. these are the communities you get to live in. Mm -hmm. Do you, uh, what kind of, of um, types of, and what kind of interventions can be used to help that person re get more reflection on the impact? And is that something that would be eliminated if we had community we have people having a sense of community so that by the time they're adults, right. they're not in a mindset where they feel so angry and so isolated that they are just raging folks who are in, in a form of you know, a mental state of, I want to do all kinds of destruction. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that something that will be phased out as we create communities where people are supported, loved, and encouraged to pursue their dreams, and you know, would we would we eliminate that? So I, you know, I'm I'm thinking that may be a point that we start at, that but that we phase out as we grow, and and then so the fact that forces that create that type of mindset begins to be eliminated mm -hmm. from our communities, maybe we won't have we won't produce people like that because that's yeah. a reflection. Of who we are, we created that mindset, yes. mm -hmm. and so if we create it, then maybe we can have we have the insights to uncreate it. That pain, that anger, that hurt, that whatever it is that is that that person is fixated on, perhaps we can figure that out. And I think we can. I think we're smart enough to do that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I we I like the state hasn't invested in rehabilitation programs at all, so I just think that we haven't even really reach the tip of the iceberg in terms of how we can rehabilitate people. Yeah, yeah, and how we can change it out. And I think that there are other cultures and places where certain types of behaviors just don't exist mm. because they're not part of their reality. They don't encourage those types. So I guess a lot of the stuff that, we, that we're dealing with in our culture is a part of, you know, living in a capitalist society where people are, are, are forced to compete and some people are always forced to be at the bottom and, and they're not. So we have, we're sort of, again, responsible for some of the extreme behaviors and the violence and the things that we don't like. They, I think that in a place where people, I, this is, I was in, I lived in Ethiopia for a minute, a minute, and one of the things that I was so conscious of, because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big girl. <laughs> <laughs> Because of a lot of things, including diets and stuff, but that, that to hold weight, and I found because I started losing weight really rapidly because it's because of it's so such a harsh environment for me. But to be able to maintain weight in a place where people are not eating well is in fact a sign of wealth, mm -hmm. and people are looking at you like, wow, you know, that's that's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just saying, it's just there's a whole lot of things going on in this culture that's that's specific to our pathology, our way of doing and being, mm -hmm. that's, that, that varies from place to place and culture to culture. Yeah. So I am good, and I just think we have a lot more, we're more resourceful and creative than we realize. We just haven't been tested and put, mm -hmm. put to the test. Yeah. 
This reminds me of, I was watching a documentary of an indigenous community in Peru, and they were talking, it was about, the documentary was about language preservation, but, mm, um, and so mm, somebody was asking, mm, what is the word for policia or police in your language? And the woman said, oh, we don't have a word for that. And so it just, and it made me think about how people have lived without what we call the police yeah. for such a long period of time. And so we have they lived in communities and we have to be able to do the same, right? Like, what is the difference it's, now? Well, I will say this. My great-grandmother, who grew up, my, my family, my paternal family, come from, well, we all come, someone's, my friend said, we all come from someplace called Lowdown, Mississippi. If you're, you know, eventually, we're going to go from California by way of Lowdown, Mississippi, because most of us uh, black, black people came through that diaspora, ended up coming through somebody's southern, you know, port somewhere, mm -hmm. and our my my paternal grandparent parent family lineage um, was deeply rooted in uh, sharecropping, uh, subsistence type of farming, and things like that, and that whole um, and and so my father grew up in East Texas, and so my great grandmother told me, and she this is a woman who always slept with a gun oh under gosh. a pillow or a straight razor in her wow. apron. She was never without cell phone protection because. Mm -hmm. You didn't call the police. Right. Mm -hmm. This notion of black people calling the police mm -hmm. is fairly new. Mm -hmm. okay? They didn't protect us. It was not something, the, the court system wasn't for us. Right. So, you know, you had to have someone vouch for some white person had to vouch for you for right. them to be even considered to be a legal complaint mm -hmm. in places. Mm -hmm. How dare you? Don't you show up in no courthouse acting like you've you got freedom papers, you know? So, so she was always, as a woman who at times had been married and of course at times was divorced, she always had to be ready to protect herself. Mm -hmm. And my, my grandmother and a number of black women from that era, they were packing. They yeah. were, were packing women. Because, mm -hmm. you know, you come up on them, hey, it's going to be, <laughs> yeah, we go, something's going to happen because I'm going to protect myself mm -hmm. one way or the other. And, and so they, they are not... In my family, were not police loving people. Mm -hmm. They, it was. I was not. I didn't grow up with that type of mentality. They were. How did you become a prosecutor? I. But, but see, this is the thing. I went to law school. I was oh in Coast Guard. <laughs> okay. <laughs> let's let's talk about. It. I went to law school. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and my my first goal was to be a writer. I was a journalism yeah. major. And I was doing plays and doing all kinds of creative stuff. And then I went to law school. One, because I was married with a kid before I graduated. And I was trying to find out what my next thing was. I thought I was going to work for the newspapers. For, and I think I wrote an article about what happened when I I worked so hard to get into uh, a position to work for one of the local papers here. Mm -hmm. And my sophomore junior year, and I was working as a copy girl, which was a stepping stone to mm -hmm. possible full-time employment. And I had only been there. I was like so excited, so proud to be part of that world. Oh, it was an all-white male world mostly. Mm -hmm. But you know, I was so unconscious and so uninformed and so, I'm going to just say colored and not a good way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just... Mm -hmm. And didn't, was not as challenging as I am now. Mm -hmm. But so when I went to the environment there, and I should have been able to see what it was, but all I was like, I was part of the team. Right. And uh, I was there about not even a month when one of the guys who I did like, who was very nice, invited me to lunch. He was from New York, he had long hair, and you know, just he did dress. This was back in the time, like where people wore suit and ties still as journalists, and oh. women were, were, were you didn't, women didn't wear pantsuits even back then. They were still in, oh. in dresses and things. It was like out of the movies from yeah. the 40s and 50s where newspaper reporters had that, that you know, that, that sort of grungy but suited look, and that's all these guys who all have sort of military type of suit and tie things. And so Marty, this guy's Marty, I'm calling his name, oops. But, <laughs> I get it. Okay. <laughs> but this guy was one of the few people who talked to me and, and I enjoyed his, he was an editor, uh, one of the editors, and we would, you know, we would talk, my job was to, to rip the, rip the uh, uh, news copy that came across and order, put it in certain order and give it to the people at the editor's desk and do a little gopher stuff. And it was just a little yeah. fun job. Mm -hmm. And he said, can I, take you, I need to speak to you, can we go to lunch? I said, sure, sure. And we got, went to lunch and he said, 
um, this is your last day. I've been told, I've been asked to tell you this is your last day. I was like, what? What? Mm -hmm. Why? And then he told me, he says, well, Lola, if you were in a place like New York or Chicago or in the newsroom there, you would be okay. But you just don't fit in here. You just don't fit in here. Wow. And so I was so devastated because I mean, because that was racism. It's yeah. smack in my face. Colored girl, you aren't wanted. Mm. Doesn't matter how good you are, how hard you work, you don't fit in and there's no place for you here. It's just a two newspaper town. Yeah. <laughs> right. and, and a lot of the people who were working with staff, they're also taught at my, in my journalism department. It was all wow. sort of enmeshed. Mm -hmm. And so I was clearly getting this message that my aspirations to be a writer and a journalist here were not going to take place. Mm -hmm. And I ended up going to law school and applying one place because my friend said to me, you really should apply to law school. I'm like, why? Because I was looking at jobs at uh, uh, J.C. Penney's and Sears wow. because, I mean, literally, I, I took a chance on a career that didn't, any, no one seemed to support, my parents didn't support me being a journalist really. Mm -hmm. Who do they know? Who are, what writers? What are you talking about? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. Yes, sir. And then, and then to be smacked down and told you're not good enough, you're not going to be in it. Well, so you go back and get jobs, you could have gone right out of high school. Right. So it was just a quirk of faith that I applied and got into law school. And once I got into law school, the thing that I found most interesting was litigation. Wow. And that led me, I was going to be a defense attorney or, or a prosecutor somewhere. Because you, know, you want to be a trial. Trial, trial, trial. And trial. That's fun. And that's how, that's, how, that's how I, but again, I, I socialized to be you know, a, a team player, to, to find my way, to find, to belong to some, some form of what? Some group thing that so it was the prosecutors or defense attorneys. It wasn't it wasn't a really big thing to me. It was like employment. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And and then doing things that I could say made, you know, like I'm a prosecutor, I'm fighting the bad guys. Yeah, it's very simplistic and not deep, but it became deep because you know, you get into the world, then you deal with, with what it's really like to be a person of color in the system, whether you're a judge or prosecutor, mm -hmm. defense attorney. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I I wonder the conversations I have. But I don't have very many with people who are people of color in this system. They all know. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. You walk into a courtroom without a degree and see the inequities. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anybody can go observe Operation Streamline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the question is, we we hold uh, judges and lawyers and. Places of I know high esteem in a lot of communities, particularly communities of color. Yeah, you know, we, we, you know, I, I still see people. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be, and I'm like, oh gosh. One of the happiest moments for me was when my daughter, my younger daughter, who was working for one of the largest uh, law firms on the East Coast, very very prestigious firm, said that she was not trying. She was working as a law clerk. Called and told me she decided not to be a lawyer. Mm. I was so. So she had already started. She was, she, she was actually recruited out of, out of college mm -hmm. and to this a law firm on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. Just about everybody, all the other law clerks did go to law school. Mm -hmm. She's one of the few who didn't. Okay, okay. And so she was at that point where she's like, I've been here, saw what I saw. Yeah. And, and she's. Especially in defense. Yes. She followed me around as a kid to, because I had my law office and she's hanging out with me in court. And so I, you know, I knew that she was. Influenced by that, mm -hmm. but now she's she was old enough to really be in the the mix, and and working on like a Wall Street firm doing stuff like that and that world. She got to see what lawyering was like at that end, mm -hmm. and realized that it was not in line with who she was. Mm -hmm. And I was so happy mm -hmm. because I think that unfortunately we sell people a bill of goods, and what we need is abolitionists. We need people out here fighting to. I was asked to speak at a uh, for a college state um, event, and I and uh, a few years back, when, right after we started the Bell Fund, really, and I said to them, "Well, you probably don't want me to come in because I would say to the law students, <laughs> burn your law books, read poetry, <laughs> architecture, anything that gives you the ability to imagine a different." type of world for us. Mm -hmm. And the answers are not going to be found in those law books. Yeah. The people we need out here creating uh, and expanding our realities 
are going to come from some interesting places, I think. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. law school is like a deadening, deadening thing. Yeah. Informing. And then you have to figure out how to break free of that. And that takes some time. Not everyone does. Yeah. It's funny because I think I'm the only person that I know that went to law school and then became an abolitionist while she was there. <laughs> so, so how did you get undercover? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I was pretty out there. <laughs> I think it's just, I went to Stanford. And so I think that when you're at a place like that, people are more willing to listen to your out there ideas because I think they just imbue me with a sense of respectability. They're like, oh, she went to Stanford. Like, she must have something worth thinking about. And you were in Oakland. Yes. Which was oh, they did you, Right, because there, there are places, when you said Oakland, I'm like, right, right. Okay, yeah, now, yeah. Now that makes sense because mm -hmm. that is a hotbed of, of radicalism. It is. And, and, and for a, has been for a long time. Okay, you have a lot of uh, very, you know, well, I don't talk about, you know, Oakland's. There's, and like right now, Chicago has some strong mm -hmm. things. Yeah. So there's some places where you're just sort of able to find groups and people, and it's it's an environment that can nurture that type of thing. So, yeah. and so that's a, so I, I might say Stanford maybe, but I think Oakland generally. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think. And so, you're like, uh, I would just do these workshops, like, put on, that were like, do we need police? Like, do we need prisons? And I, I just can't believe they didn't ever kick me out. <laughs> yeah. Did they show up? Did they show oh, up? Oh, no. The, there was, well, there's just different communities in the law school, you know. Mm -hmm. there, I know for a fact that the federal society and most, the majority of the law school were probably looking at me like, she's a radical, she's crazy, I'm not going to listen to what she says in, in class anymore. But there, no, there was there was always a group of like 20 people that would consistently yes, come, and that's all that you need. That's right. You had, you had enough for a movement, literally, 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 you know. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> <the same movement. laughs> it's good because, because I, I, saw, I saw a video of a student who was confronting students at the university at a function behind the decision to charge uh, some of the students at the U of A this couple years ago who served and challenged the Border Patrol. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so yeah. she's a she was a I think she's a law student, but she came in and disrupted an event. Mm -hmm. And and I'm looking at the faces of all those students who are like petrified <laughs> of what what she was doing yeah. because that was so against the grain what their parents sent them to school to do. Right. And like, are you, I'm not going to get, get uh, you know, white ball by being associated with you. Even if I felt that, but you could tell they were all like, just like white knuckling and like, mm -hmm. and it's like, and I, so law schools are way behind yes. when it comes to what we need as communities of oppressed communities and, uh, and society generally. They're still playing, you know, the paper chase lawyers, law yeah. firms, money. So I, you know, I, I, but see, listen, I think that the good thing is if you've gone to law school, you have a understanding of how the legal system works. And that can be helpful in organizing and informing people of uh, what what they can do and like give mm -hmm. them information. You're sort of like a good resource. Yeah. So that in that sense, it's it's good. Beyond that, I'm not so sure. I think that's why my writing the creativity thing mm -hmm. is so important. Yeah. Because I've got to balance off the the mm -hmm. thinking yes. that that they that they sort of condition you, trained you to do, mm -hmm. and it's so not healthy. Yeah, it's not. It's and, and so so I my my kids tell me, "Oh, you're so much nicer now that you're not here." Like I. numbers mostly uh, and, and even yeah. in that people color, people of color who are extremely uncomfortable with people like you and I mm -hmm. because yeah. we represent what what people have been taught to be afraid of mm -hmm. and and truly I think that that's why uh, you know when it comes to being an abolitionist or anyone or any against the culture 
you you're you're a moving target for a lot of people for yeah. a lot of different reasons. Mm -hmm. We do not get as much support from the black community here as you would think we would. For the very now they will show up for cops. Oh God. They do. Yeah. They show Y'all hear me? I'm saying, I'm talking the truth. You show up for cops, and you know you do. And you show up for a whole bunch of folks who are not really fighting for our communities because you're compromised, you're constantly looking for approval, acceptance, and money, perhaps, mm -hmm. from, from, the, from the power sources. And, and I, you know, do I blame them? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
And my vision never really returned after this, and I realized I, I was not going to be able to keep up with the demands of the, the practice of my vision being so so poor or unpredictable. And so I, I you know, I had to take, you know, re, readjust my whole idea of self and, and career, and I took some time off to travel and teach overseas and things, and then I came back home. And I was in that, you know, looking for things to do because I was been community minded and always involved in activism of some sort. When uh, I saw the uh, the movement around issues like Mama Bailout and things coming up, and I was like, you know, I started studying and reading and sitting in on webinars and telephone calls and just getting a little bit more grounded and stuff. And considering all the things that had happened over time, some of it was making sense, but you know, I had my own analysis of that. And it was through that, uh, during that period of time, that they were really pushing to have a national Mama's Day bailout, which is cool. But they were trying to get people to, to sort of generate funds to send it to these uh, specific cities with larger black populations. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do it here. <laughs> because it's, we got Mama's Day bailout issues here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so uh, I just went ahead and took the, the, the same formulas and ideas and things that they were putting out for their own program and agendas and took it and, and applied it locally. And once we did the first one, you realized that it was not just a one-day thing or a, an occasional Mother's Day thing. It really was something that needed to be done on a more permanent, long-term basis, not just for women, but for men and other people. Mm -hmm. And so that's the that's how we got involved. It's just a lot of circumstances that I was in the place and time in my life where I had the ability to do that and a lot of experience to do it that allowed me to create the bail fund and get it started. It's most bail funds, you know, I'm also a regional organizer with the Community Justice Exchange, and I would say most bail funds across the country are not. Uh, there are immigration defense funds, which, and I'm not going to say that is an exception, but for bail funds, which are focused on community, uh, dealing with criminal bonds, mm -hmm. a lot of them are not run by people of color, okay? Mm -hmm. Largely because, part of it is because the resources to do the bail funds are coming from communities other than our own communities. And the people doing it are, are who have access to the course, understand the court system tend to be, uh, because the folks of color who could do it aren't stepping up to do that. You know, you don't have a lot of lawyers saying, I'm gonna do this, because, well, there's no money in this. <laughs> there's yeah. no way. So, and other, so it's, it's really important, I think, that to be a, a black woman abolitionist in this moment in time is very important because you're not going to see a lot of that uh, in terms of the, the community of bail fund groups because of the nature of what it takes to, to do bails and organizing and working and interfacing with the courts, mm -hmm. which are very hostile and racist, as you know, to begin yeah. with. So training up people and getting people involved. Larger mm -hmm. cities, that's not the case. I mean, you got from New York, Chicago, Detroit, totally different urban situations. But that's not the whole country. Yeah. When we talk about looking at where this is, and, and crime and punishment is, you know, a, a national. So, um, you know, they're, they're hubs, but by and large, you don't have that, that, that representation. I think that hopefully will change as we raise up. One, I have to say, we're going to get rid of, of cash money bail and the whole pretrial detention thing, mm -hmm. okay? I don't want to make this conversation about ending cash money bail or even ending the uh, the, the pivot, which is to uh, pretrial risk assessment, which is nothing more than a, a fake tool, scientific tool that re reifies the same types of targeting uh, for, for detention as what we had when we had the judges using cash money bail. They just you know, used a found a clever way to say, well, no, we, we have these, this data that we collect, and this data will tell you who's who the bad guys are, and we're only going to hold the bad guys. Well, 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 where's that data? What's that data coming from? Well, it's coming from mostly law enforcement type institutions, and and universities have done research for it for law and order type institutions who have now come up with this whole profile of what criminality looks like, and it looks like me and you, you know, yeah. and and so, but now they can say, well, it's not us. The data says you're the guy or woman most likely not to show up. And you're like, really? Now, like I said, if I told you I had a machine that could predict what you were going to do in the future, would you buy it? Probably not, because we don't believe it. We understand that no one knows what the future holds. But we actually have judges saying, I can predict if you're going to, you're going to reoffend. 
How do you know that? Because people change. People have free will. They do all day long. But what we've done is we said, well, certain people don't. Certain people are, in fact, are going to be. They are, in fact. People have changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some people aren't. So if you happen to be a person from a certain neighborhood, right. a certain day, then basically your future is right. predetermined. That's what I was looking for. Predetermined. Mm -hmm. and, that, and, and that we allow them to say that is crazy. Yeah. But that's what we're doing with this PSAs. We're saying that some people's future is predetermined by birth, at birth, by their circumstances, and they can't escape it. It's written in stone, and now we're going to hold them to that future. So we can say, you did this when you were a young man, you at 18 or uh, 21, now you're back at 35. As far as we're concerned, we can close close the books. Mm -hmm. Once a criminal, always a criminal. Right. So um, it's I don't. So we're finding it hard to educate people about that. But ultimately, the conversation has to be about ending pretrial detention, mm -hmm. not just ta attacking and disrupting or trying to take away the tools that the state will use to perpetuate mass incarceration because they're good at finding new things. Right. How about humane? Humane prisons. We're gonna put murals and daycares in jails. Right. Or ankle monitors. Ankle monitors. Yes. That control your life. Probation forever. You know, mass surveillance and supervision. All the various things. Oh, we're gonna get you housing. We're gonna give you a case manager while you're going through the court system. We'll get your housing and this, that, that thing. But don't miss appointment because right. you. Right. So right. those are. The, I said we don't want anything that's involved with the carceral state. Mm -hmm. Being presented as a you know a therapeutic helpful intervention because that's not what they do, mm -hmm. and so um, the ultimate goal is um, is recognizing that we have we have allowed our the state to uh, say that certain people are not entitled to their freedom to the presumption of innocence. Right. And as right. long as we could perpetuate this fiction, then they feel comfortable. You know, doing that, mm -hmm. and and so we have judges who know better. Those judges ought to know better. They, but they're still shoving as many poor people, people of color, homeless, vulnerable people into those jails as they possibly can, because they don't get there without a judge mm -hmm. saying you get to, you have to go. Right. So what does that say about judges that they they are prepared to feed the machine with our bodies mm -hmm. and our families' bodies? Okay. They're not they're not the good guys. Yeah. And I think it's important to say that they do have agency. That's prosecutorial. Mm -hmm. Overcharging and charging. Is, right. is really key mm -hmm. because they set the whole tone for the punishment thing mm -hmm. by the way they're charging people. Right. And 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 that and that's why you have to look at the role of the prosecutor as, as part of the just not judges and actually do the uh, the set the tone for pre-trial detention mm -hmm. because they're the ones determining whether what conditions of release are yeah. going to be used, whether they're gonna let you go or not. So they're big drivers of that. But when it comes to the actual sentencing, it's largely prosecutors mm -hmm. who are charging uh, cases in such a way that they can almost guarantee that you are going to do time. Okay? Because you're going to plead and you're, not, you're going to be too scared to go to trial. That's right. We have a right, supposedly we have an individual right to trial. So it's, it's unethical. Right, right. Because, to say the least. Yeah, because then they know that, you know, you're looking at 25 years if you get convicted, and you know, it, but if you take 15 right. on a plea agreement, it's so 15 years, 15 years of your life, and 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 yeah, and we know that that is so racially biased. Mm -hmm. Who gets that time, and 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 how many years they're taking out of the lives of people of color? Mm -hmm. It's insane. Black people in Arizona get 25 percent longer prison times for drug cases. Mm -hmm. Than anybody else. Mm -hmm. Twenty-five percent longer prison sentences than anyone else because they're black. Black tax. That's something that we need to take up. No, I mean I agree. I guess you were talking about how I'm dependent on and complicit in the legal system. Okay, that's what I said. Okay. There's a lot of complicity, mm -hmm. and it hurts. Mm -hmm. 
it's too messy and too racial. And I'm like, yeah, but it is. It's 25%. I mean, how many how many times does that have to be documented for you to see that there's a 25% longer prison time just because you're black? Mm -hmm. That's not okay. No. And and why aren't we talking to judges and prosecutors and 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 doing something to and I I'm trying to say so what could we do like I said we could we could do a whole bunch of things putting our heads together and I I just would love to take that up and say is there something maybe we could take a case test case we could do some stuff I don't know okay what can we do but then now we have that former horrible prosecutors on the Supreme Court Montgomery now yes. Hom openly homophobic yes, yes. and I. Yeah, he was a, he, an aggressive prosecutor through his whole career, right? That was kind of his Thank identity. And now he is on the Supreme Court. So, Arizona Supreme Court. We have problems. But yeah, between our governor and our, our legislature, that just... It's a Republican legislature. It is. It is. So, so for people like me and you, these, this is, these are sort of challenging times, but I think yeah. that in a way... Um, it's also room for us to do some amazing things because one, people don't believe it's possible, and we know that's not true. Mm -hmm. And secondly, the type of people who are going to come here and do that work are going to be some pretty. They got to be some hardcore because <laughs> this is there's no there's no room for soft radicals here. No, there is not. It's not. <laughs> you gotta you gotta come in hard or you just go away. Yeah. Because they're not going to respond to to soft. Little move, they don't. And that's why we form a stuff just sort of like, eh. yeah. Right? You either got to come hard and and be prepared to fight mm -hmm. for real change, or just need to go find another place because yeah. this this is a hard place to be. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we've been talking for around an hour. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I guess one of the things I did want to ask about is that I noticed that um, the key principles that you have on your website about the key principles of community bond and bail funds, you do talk about the importance of folks who are fighting to end immigration detention to work in concert with people who are fighting the, to end the criminal process. Right, the intersectionality, the crim, M, is it, crim, immigration. Crim, crim, I would say that that's become, unfortunately, or whatever, it is for Arizona, federal courts now, pretty much all immigration has taken over so much of what what yeah, they do. Yeah, it's when like 40% of the Tucson docket is I, I, illegal entry and reentry. I can believe that. So that wasn't the case when I was, because I practiced in federal court there as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, so I was doing federal cases as well. And it wasn't that way, but it is now. And when you see what that looks like, I get so disheartened by yeah. the fact that we have people participating in what is surely not uh, any type of uh, constitutional hearings no, for people or ethical or, ethical or anything yeah. but yet they're there doing this job so yeah. um, we were talking about the importance of immigration and immigration connecting uh -huh. those two I, I because uh, we work with a number of uh, immigration defense funds uh, funds and rises and mm -hmm. others who are part of our network it's, it's very clear that one of the stress that one of the things that we think recognize is a stress is when we start to to see mass incarceration, whether it's immigration or criminal, as being part of the same machinery. Mm -hmm. So, for example, a lot of the surveillance things that they're doing mm -hmm. with immigration are being transferred over to the criminal mm -hmm. and the, the let's let's get them out of detention mode because now we have all this nifty surveillance stuff we're right. we're doing with the immigration that we you know so that you see so the machine and the and the people who are profiting from uh, detention are using this using these technologies and 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 crossbreeding their 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 their, uh, their tactics mm -hmm. and so it's important for us to be having conversations because we understand that what they do to you today they're going to do to us tomorrow and the same thing applies to uh, the criminal side and we notice that as the jail pop prison population not the jail but the prison population as the carceral impacts of certain of policy changes begin to be reflected in a decar the, the reduction in the number of people going to prison that there was a shortage their prisons in some places were that were empty mm -hmm. or there were not they weren't they didn't have enough uh, bodies to just you know to make profits so what do they do 
Now they start using us. contracts are nice. That's right. So now they're now those facilities that once were primarily criminal uh, facilities are becoming immigration detention centers. So it, so it, we've got to have conversation. We have to be working together because at the end of the day, it is a, it's a machine that will incarcerate all of us. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you think I'm saying, and that includes white people too. Okay, you guys don't understand one of the, the fastest growing populations in Arizona is, the, is rural, coming from rural counties. Mm -hmm. Those are predominantly, yes, there are people of color, but they're putting a lot more white people into the system coming from rural counties because mm -hmm. that's who a lot of them are there. Mm -hmm. And so I'm saying you all thought that if you were safe, right. but it's not because the, the, unfortunately in rural counties, prisons and jails are a form of economic. Right, mm -hmm. right. And so, you know, you can't, y'all can't afford to be out of the conversation either because this is a machine that will eat us all up. But with Crimin, it's, it's rec we are now recognizing that we need to collaborate more together, certainly with the National Bell Fund Network, which is what I'm part of, is part of the, uh, one of the groups that the CJE provides support to. That is an ongoing conversation. We're you know, exchanging notes and, and, and thinking about practices, organizing practices and strategies that allow us to bring people together and exchange that information and figure out how we can collaborate on coming up with, with strategies that are effective. And the other thing that's really important is we don't do enough here in Arizona is, and I'm, I'm always on about the anti-blackness part of the immigration conversation here. Immigration is not just a Latina, 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 Latino issue. Well, there's Afro-Latinos. Afro-Latinos, Afro too. <laughs> yes, yeah. but you know, and I'm saying. Yeah, immigration is a black issue. That's right, and, it's, and it's a, it is an Asian issue. It's like Asian people. It's a lot of people. It's an international issue because a lot of people at the border are coming from from all over the world, and yet when you get here into the into Arizona, it's like it's you know you don't hear about it. Uh, places like California and other places, of course, is more. They're clearly working in collaboration together. I think I'm sure in terms of uh, grassroots organization. I know what we do with the National Bail Fund and immigration defense funds, but I'm talking about other uh, organizing groups and and uh, and states where uh, immigration is clearly a, a, a real huge issue. And that's just about all the states. What am I talking about? Yeah. But but I mean, when I'm talking about border states like California, Arizona, we have a, a real like round zero type of relationship. But the difference between I think the organizing that's being done in places like California versus here is that this is not as diverse as it needs to be. Mm -hmm. And that hurts us. Yeah. Because when we have conversations with people nationally, nobody wants to hear about your, you know, one note. Because it's not one note. Mm -hmm. It's in and it's it comes to so many communities and we're stronger together. Yeah. So I would I would love to see more just on the on the ground work on the ground uh, work to to bring out these issues so that we are not so isolated in the conversation because on a national level, I mean I'm looking at all you know from the Haitians to to you name it, people are having conversations and how that how immigration treats different groups of people. Yeah. All that's important, and that's not part of the conversation we're having locally, and, and we should because, again, and nobody's safe. Nobody's yeah. safe. So, well, thank you so much for coming <laughs> to the podcast. Well, thank you.